You are listening to Rentai Kan, the official podcast of the Amnesty International Nagoya Multicultural Provisional Group. One planet, many people, innumerable viewpoints, justice, and equity for all. Yokoso from Aichi Prefecture and to the Rentaikan podcast, where we look into human rights issues from all over the world and look at ways we as everyday people can make a difference. This podcast is a production of the Amnesty International Nagoya Multicultural Provisional Group, and we hope to use it as an instrument of enlightenment and connection. So be sure to hit us up on social media at either facebook.com slash AIMCG Nagoya or on Twitter at AIMCG underscore Nagoya. If you didn't catch those, we'll be sure to put those addresses in the show notes. We'll also have nothing but love for you too if you leave us a review on iTunes. This episode's fun fact is the word rentaikan means solidarity in Japanese. The three Chinese characters it is composed of mean group, bind, and feeling respectively. So if you came into today's episode not knowing any Japanese, you've learnt two new words already. Yokoso, which is welcome, and rentaikan, which is solidarity. Today's episode is the first part of a three-part series we'll be doing on how climate change affects human rights. In this episode, we'll look at how climate change and human rights have become linked over the last 30-odd years. In part two, we'll have a look at the tangible impact it will have worldwide and what specific human rights climate change will affect. And finally, in part three, we will show you some small steps you can take to join us in the fight to prevent catastrophic climate change. However, before we get started, we would like to make an acknowledgement. We are recording this during a period of unprecedented global upheaval, with the COVID-19 virus spreading like wildfire. It has killed and infected thousands and put an incredible strain on health services worldwide. British journalist George Monbiot recently said in the international edition of The Guardian that this is nature's wake-up call to wealthy nations. We can no longer say that we have successfully insulated ourselves against all natural hazards, and that we can continue to seal ourselves in a bubble of consumerism, distraction, and denial. The measures taken worldwide, as well as the virus itself, have impacted many of the human rights that most of us take for granted, such as the right to freedom of movement and association, and even the right to life. With everyone focusing on this crisis, it can be easy to be caught up in the urgency of now and to forget about the challenges of the future. Like COVID-19, there has been another crisis that science has been warning us about for quite some time. It will also ultimately have a bigger effect on both human survival as well as human rights if it is allowed to play out. This crisis is the one yet to be realised by climate change. COVID-19 has greatly affected the way we live. We don't need to explain why this is. However, the potential for social dislocation, extreme weather, disease, 
and premature death spanning generations are a real possibility should we not learn the lessons of the current crisis. Those being that we should listen to scientific experts. If we don't, the human rights we have lost during this crisis will be the tip of the iceberg compared to what we will lose if the battle to save our environment is not won. Before we dive into this topic, a pertinent question to ask would be, is climate change even a human rights issue? Episode 1, Climate Change and Human Rights, The History. The move to recognise climate change as a human rights issue has gained momentum thanks to two particular international legal decisions concerning the link between these two topics. The first was the ruling by the Dutch Supreme Court in December 2019 ordering that country's government to cut greenhouse emissions by 25% from 1990 levels by the end of 2020. The suit that led to this decision was filed by the environmental group Urgenda and was argued from the perspective that failure to halt climate change was a violation of Holland's responsibilities under the European Convention on Human Rights. The second decision concerned the Toyota family from the South Pacific island of Kiribati and their application for protection from New Zealand in 2013 in the face of their home becoming uninhabitable due to crop failures and overcrowding. After being rejected, they appealed to the United Nations to help overturn that initial decision. While not supporting their case specifically, the UN's final verdict made it possible for future asylum seekers to seek protection based on climate change caused human rights violations. While these two decisions have helped climate change be recognised as a human rights issue, academic research has also shown that the use of human rights discourse has been increasing in intergovernmental talks about climate change mitigation. Climate justice rhetoric, which highlights the relationship between human rights and climate change, increased during the period spanning 2009 to 2016. To find out more, we spoke to the author of the previously mentioned academic research, Dr Evan Gatch, an environmental activist and a researcher posted to the University of Nagoya. During our conversation, we found out how environmental and climate issues have been viewed, how this has evolved over time, and how it has moved away from being a paradigm involving our air and plants and animals. According to Dr Gatch, there are a variety of viewpoints concerning climate change that vary from the technocratic and market-based, those coming from an empirical and scientific stance, to the straight-up denialist. Then there is the climate justice perspective, which is based on nine shared principles, such as contextual vulnerability in terms of economic development and mode of living, financial restitution for vulnerable countries, and most pertinent to this discussion, human rights. Indeed, it could be perceived that what catalyzed this movement 30-odd years ago was a case that directly impacted the human rights of a community in the United States. In that case, these rights include the right to live free of discrimination and the right to health. When we say 
environment. It's not just what people often think of as environment. It's not just animals and forests and trees and oceans and things like that. Our environment is where we live. It's everything about where we live. And that includes our physical environment. That includes our psychological and mental environment. So it's really how humans are affected by environmental issues. Climate change overall as an issue has been framed differently over the years. Climate change has been advocated for from a perspective of science to polar bears to people. 30 years ago, when environmental organizations were first really pushing climate activism, it was from a science-based perspective. They were seeing science as having credibility, as having authority. And so it was very science-based. It was looking at the changes to the atmosphere, the changes to the climate. And that's sort of how they were pushing it. Notably, that's also where the science was at at that point. That's where climate research was. Over time, as science kind of started broadening and changing the things that they were researching and more researchers were getting involved, that science became stronger. And that moved towards looking at not just the atmosphere, but how is it going to change our natural environment? And climate activism really kind of followed that, that instead of looking at just our air, essentially, right? Instead of looking at our sky, it's looking at what's going to happen to wildlife habitats. What's going to happen to polar bears? Their habitat is going to be destroyed. Where are they going to live? How are they going to survive? Really, as climate change has intensified, we've seen what effects it has on people. We've seen extreme weather. We've seen typhoons. We've seen floods and droughts. And we have climate refugees, right? These are not debatable things. And the science has also followed that, right? And there's been a big strengthening of tying climate change to its effects on people and its effects on society. That's something that might not have been possible 30 years ago because of the science. It's definitely become a much more, not just point of mainstream activism, but I think mainstream in the understanding of what climate change as a problem really is. Environmental justice more or less started in the United States in 1982 from uh, protests in Warren County, North Carolina. So these were people protesting the siting of a hazardous waste landfill in their community that they were not able to uh, have any part of the decision-making process. And this is the beginning of it as a movement, but also as a concept, because from this came a study where researchers looked at what were the factors in choosing sites for hazardous waste landfills throughout the United States. And the conclusion of this research was that race was actually the number one factor in siting hazardous waste landfills throughout the country. And this is something that is still cited to this day. This is something that still happens to this day. And there's still plenty of environmental justice research that confirms this. So environmental justice, you know, at the beginning was a very America-centric movement. But over time, you know, you have environmental movements springing up all over the world. In every country of the world has environmental problems and citizens reacting to that. The Warren County case is one which highlights how environmental issues impact upon human rights. But what if we were to become more specific by narrowing our focus to the idea of climate change, as opposed to the broader topic of environmentalism, 
but also look at the topic of human rights and climate change from an international perspective. How does this way of thinking apply in nations ranging from Switzerland to Swaziland? Since the Universal Declaration of Human Rights was written 70-odd years ago, the Charter System, the United Nations and negotiations at the international level have been the main arena in which human rights have been enshrined. What stance have these four taken as it pertains to human rights and climate change? And what has their approach meant to climate change activists in how they campaign for this issue? You can give a million different answers. And that depends on what your definition of human rights are. And human rights are something that I think is part of our you know, everyday vernacular. It's something everybody knows. But when it comes to defining what is a human right, this can really vary depending on the country. And this can vary depending on even the person. And, and so this is why there isn't one single human rights treaty that encompasses every human right and every single country is a member to. There are numerous human rights treaties that countries have signed on to. And every country has signed on to a number of human rights treaties and agreements. And these kind of vary between countries. This is something that when we look at climate negotiations, really the one of the big sticking points in negotiating the Paris Agreement was that all of these countries had different conceptions of what human rights were and what specific rights were connected to climate change and weren't. As, I guess as an example of that is some countries will not, in a national capacity, will not recognize LGBTQ plus rights as human rights. People saw this as how are we going to put human rights into the Paris Agreement when no one can agree to what they are. And the strategy that developed from that is really to, instead of trying to waste everyone's time and deal with everyone's different definitions of climate justice and trying to find one unified definition is to just tie everyone's existing human rights obligations to climate change. And that was the strategy that made it eventually into the Paris Agreement. It says that people have to keep taking in mind their existing human rights obligations. Whatever agreements that countries have already signed on to, they now they have to think about those rights in their climate change response. Right? And they have to think about those rights when they're not responding to climate change. So even if a country has different human rights definitions than another country, they've still signed on to a number of human rights treaties and agreements. And so that is now a part of their obligation. And so this is not defined in the Paris Agreement and that it's sort of up to each country's own human rights obligations to figure out how their uh, human rights work is going to connect to climate change. But this is where the work comes from for civil society groups and from NGO groups, is that now they have this hook. They have something in the Paris Agreement that connects climate change to human rights. And that's what NGOs are kind of working towards right now is now we have these connections. This is where the work starts. Now we have to deal with not just national governments, but local and regional governments within the national context to figure out how their policies connect to both these human rights obligations 
and the Paris Agreement in that context. And despite the fact that populist leaders and authoritarian governments, it's extremely worrying. And this is exactly why, in my opinion, engagement from the public needs to ramp up, is that if you have populist leaders, then we need to look at the population to take the lead on this. And like I said before, though, that I think the positive side is that once these things are in the Paris Agreement, that's always going to be a hook for negotiations and not just for the people at United Nations conferences doing these negotiations, but for protests, for demonstrations, for climate activism. Now we know that not only are human rights part of climate change and climate change is part of human rights and they're connected down to the core, but we have every country in the world essentially admitting that and saying that they agree with this notion. So this provides a context, I think, for people to kind of use in their activism. And it's not just them trying now trying to convince governments that human rights and climate change are fundamentally connected. It's using the fact that the governments have agreed to that concept. Really, the bright side to this is that now that human rights are in there, it acts as a tool to put pressure on national governments in both civil liberties as well as kind of the broader human rights perspective. And it's likely going to remain in future treaties and climate policies because realistically, no one wants to be the country that tries to remove human rights from an international agreement, especially when it's so uh, unspecific. Before we continue our conversation with Dr. Gatch, we should mention that the creators of this podcast will be hosting an online discussion panel entitled The Freedom Toast Cafe, How Does Climate Change Impact Human Rights? on May 17th from 6pm Japanese time. Joining us will be Marinel Sumuk Ubaldo, a global human rights and environmental activist, as well as the organiser of the first Philippines climate strike, as well as Professor Masao Takano, Professor from the Department of Earth and Climate Sciences from Nagoya University. If you want to join us for this event, please click on the link in the show notes. Now, let's get back to the podcast. With the paradigm of climate justice gaining prominence in intergovernmental talks related to climate change, it would be pertinent to ask which countries are pushing this set of values of which human rights is a key plank. So from the perspective of countries, the simple answer is that the countries most impacted by climate change are the ones pushing it the hardest because they have the most to lose from this. That this is especially developing countries and especially small island states who are not just fighting for better climate policy or just transition, but really fighting for the existence of their culture, of their heritage, of their actual country, like entire countries may be disappearing uh, if we don't act on climate change. So these are the countries that, to them, they can't see how others don't think this is a justice issue because they're obviously impacted by this way more. Other countries, I think, that are uh, really pushing it are developing countries such as Latin American states 
who historically have faced for centuries colonial, colonialism from northern developed countries and are kind of seeing this as an extension of that colonialism, as well as an opportunity for them to push for a more just uh, world order. Right? It's not to say that developed countries are completely against this and have been kind of an enemy in this case. Like, of course, there are cases of that, but it's not a clean line that there have been developed countries that in different capacities have been supporters of climate justice or to the people that are advocating for it. And so this is something that I think over the years has been increasing, but I want to make sure it's understood that it's not a clean line between developing countries are pushing for climate justice and developed countries are not. While Dr. Gatch strongly emphasises that there is no defining schism separating the developed and developing worlds in their likelihood of embracing a climate justice agenda, it still is worth questioning whether the former countries are doing enough to counteract this problem during intergovernmental negotiations. I don't want to separate everything into developed and developing in this case, especially in regards to climate action. But I think if we're looking at, if we look at the broad climate negotiations and look at the demands of developing countries and what they're asking for and what they're getting and where climate negotiations are going, I think it's a fair assessment to say that overall developed countries haven't given developing countries the support they need or the support that they've been asking for for decades. Specifically, these are things like compensation for loss and damage, global financing for a transition to clean development in the developing world, as well as aggressive emission cuts from the entire developed world right now. So, you know, I think it's a pretty safe assessment to say that developed countries have not been doing their part. But really, you'd have to ask people from developing country NGOs and climate delegates in order to get, I think, you know, a more valid opinion on that. It is true that there is no black and white distinction between developed countries being anti-climate justice and developing ones being for it. There also are grey areas as to the opinions of a state being completely reflective of its citizens. However, if we were to look at some of the inhabitants of developed countries, it might be worth asking why is the urgency not there among their populations, and why is climate change not as widely perceived as an existential threat to some living in countries like the USA, the UK, or Japan, when compared to countries like Kiribati, Chad, the Philippines, or El Salvador? People don't feel directly affected by it in the same way that vulnerable countries or vulnerable populations do. People might notice that it's getting hotter, but they can still just go and turn on the air conditioning. And they might notice that they're using their air conditioning more than they were 10 or 20 years ago, but it's still there for them. And so they're not seeing it as an immediate problem in the same way that a subsistence farmer is noticing their crops dwindling every year or having to move because of that. America, Japan, Canada, you know, all of the developed countries throughout the world are going to have to deal with climate change. And they are going to have to deal with ripple effects from other countries or from other populations or vulnerable communities within 
those countries. But we need to first and foremost think about the people in those vulnerable communities and think about those populations and how we can support them and what we can do to minimize the impacts on them, not only for our sake, not only to minimize what's going to happen to people in less vulnerable areas, but really for the sake of human rights, for the sake of social justice, and for the sake of a safer world for everyone. Against a backdrop of climate change mitigation being of a differing priority for some nations, and it being of the utmost importance to others, it could be said that the outcome of the last COP25 climate conference in Madrid, being a stalemate, wasn't unexpected. So, how do we get nations to come together on a coherent strategy of emissions reduction? And how do we make them meet their CO2 emissions obligations once they have been agreed upon? Stopping climate change isn't a binary issue. It's not, do we stop climate change or do we not stop climate change? It's how early do we act? It's to what degree can we stop climate change? And it's how many lives can we save in this process? Something that I see a lot in climate debates is, can we stop climate change? Can it be done? Can we meet these targets? And what happens if we don't? And those are relevant and valuable questions that we need to consider. But my feeling that I really want to emphasize is that seeing it as a binary stopping climate change or not stopping climate change issue indirectly and inadvertently encourages inaction because a lot of people like me might have this pessimistic view and being like, oh, we can't stop it. So I'm tired. What's the point of fighting this? But we're fighting for a safer and a more equal world. So we might not get to the point where everyone in the world can say this world is safe and this world is equal and we've hit 100% of everything. But we can push as hard as we can to get as close as we can to having a more just and a safer world. And so I think that's really what we need to look at is how much of an effect can we have? And we need to kind of push to maximize that effect instead of just looking at it as just meeting targets. While it should be noted that there is no outright dividing line between first and third world countries when it comes to mitigating climate change along the lines of climate justice, according to Dr. Gatch. It should also be noted that how people in these countries experience it differs. This pertains to basic survival. At this point, it may be timely to discuss the distinction between civil and political rights versus economic, social and cultural rights. It could be the distinction between these two categories of human rights that may explain the discrepancies between various parties as it stands regarding climate change as a human rights issue. We could say that when those from the global north, English-speaking nations and developed countries think about human rights, they think of civil and political rights, such as freedom of speech and association, voting rights, the right to a fair trial, and legal representation, this is thanks to the Universal Declaration of Human Rights being largely written by Western and liberal interests. What is less known is that human rights also includes what are known as economic, social and cultural rights. 
These are different from the former in that they guarantee more survival-based rights, such as the right to food, water, education and health. The reason they exist is so we have civil and political rights in the first place. There's no point in having freedom of speech or voting rights if you can't eat or drink, have a roof over your head, or get an education. While it is hard to know what effect climate change will eventually have on civil and political human rights, they will definitely affect economic, social and cultural rights in the near future in nations that are contextually vulnerable. Next episode, we will focus on the areas where climate change has and will continue to negatively impact human rights in the developing South and third world countries, especially in relationship with economic, social and cultural rights. Our aim is to challenge assumptions of what human rights are and how the impact of climate change will be felt globally. Thank you so much for listening. We'd like to extend our wholehearted thanks to Dr. Evan Gatch for his time. If you would like to know more about the nine principles that make up the concept of climate justice he covered in his research, as well as how this contrasts with other approaches to climate change, we've included a link to his research in the show notes. We have also included links to all the other sources we used in researching this podcast. If you would like to find out more about this topic, please be sure to follow us on social media at either facebook.com slash AIMCGNagoya or on Twitter at AIMCG underscore Nagoya. Leave a review for us on iTunes and subscribe to us on iTunes, Stitcher or wherever you get your podcasts. Until next time, ご清聴ありがとうございました. Thanks for listening and speak to you next time.